Dear Heavenly Father, we love you so much. We praise you for your gentle touch, Father. We praise you, Father, for that small, still voice, Father, that you spoke to Elijah with. And Father Yahweh, I pray that we'd be able to hear that same voice today. Yahweh, Father, you are so wonderful. You're so great, Father. You're high and lifted up, Father. Your presence is so magnificent. And when we stand in your presence, as the prophet Isaiah said, we're undone, we're unclean, we're filthy. We live amongst the people of unclean lips. And Father Yahweh, you have to, by your grace and mercy and your strong right hand, revive us from spiritual death and breathe spiritual life into us for us to even be able to listen to what you have to teach us. Yahweh, Father, we, we are so thankful for that today. Father, Yahweh, bless this teaching today. I'm thankful to be able to teach again. pray that you would, Father Yahweh, open the minds and the hearts of the people. Let me be able to explain it in an easy-to-understand way at all levels, all ages. May there be somebody to grasp, grasp something in this sermon, uh, no matter what age they are. Yahweh, we thank you and we praise you above all. Father, we thank you for the gift of salvation through your Son, Yeshua the Messiah, his blood sacrifice, his perfect life, victorious resurrection. Father, we just are so thankful that he sits at your right hand today and he's the mediator between us, sinful humanity, and you, the one God. And we're so thankful that, Father, through him we can have access into the heavenly Holy of Holies. Thank you so much, Yahweh. I'm thankful to be back to teach again today. I really enjoyed Brother Tim and also Brother TJ. I hadn't realized it, but I guess I counted them up, and it's been four sermons I've got to hear, so that was wonderful. But we're going to get back in the swing of things today and study some about the heavens, about the creation. I've titled this message, Look at the Stars, and our opening text is going to be Genesis 1, 14 through 16. This goes back to what I talked about. All nature screams the majesty and the magnificence of Almighty Yahweh. So we want to look at the stars today. We talk a lot about the moon and even maybe to a lesser extent here about the sun, uh, their great lights in the heavens. Genesis 1, 14 through 16 tells us about them. The scripture reads, Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for festivals and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to have dominion over the day and the lesser light to have dominion over the night as well as the stars. Here the sun and the moon aren't named. We don't read the word S-U-N or M-O-O-N in this text. We know through deeper Bible study, I'll get into that in a second, that the sun and the moon are being talked about here. And I want you to notice, I was talking with my sons about this on the way over to Sabbath meeting today, that both of these lights are called great lights. It says that God made two great lights. Now, there's one that's greater than the other one. And the sun, the S-U-N, is greater than the moon in the heavens. But they're still both great lights. Then he tells us at the end of the passage, though, that the stars, which sometimes get placed on the back burner, but the stars are also being spoken about here in Genesis 1, 14 through 16, and also in verses 17 
through 18. He tells us here in Genesis 1, 14 through 16 that they're going to serve as signs for festivals. This translation puts those two words together. Some say they will serve for signs, comma, and for festivals or seasons. The Hebrew word there is moedim. It means an appointed time. It can refer to the seasons of the year like what we think, but it can also refer to appointments like the Sabbath or the new moon or the Feast of Tabernacles. It also says that they'll be providing light on the earth. Let's look at some scriptures that sometimes go unnoticed and that are coupled with Genesis 1, 14 through 16. The first one is Jeremiah 31, verse 35a. It says this, This is what Yahweh says, The one who gives the sun for light by day. Now, does that not couple with Genesis 1? The greater light to rule the what? The day. And so this passage corroborates it. It parallels that. The sun for a light by day. Then it says, The fixed order of moon and stars for light by night. Now this tells us even though the moon and the sun were not named in Genesis 1, they're implied. The prophet Jeremiah, actually this is Yahweh. Notice at the beginning it says, This is what Yahweh says. Jeremiah is just a mouthpiece. He's just a vehicle through which Yahweh's talking. And this mentions the sun, the moon, and the stars. So sometimes while I said the stars get put on the back burner, the stars keep being mentioned with the sun and the moon. Also look at Psalm 136, 7 through 9. It says this, He, this is speaking of Yahweh, made the great lights. His love is eternal. The sun to rule by day, His love is eternal. The moon and stars to rule by night. Once again, sun, moon, and stars are talked about here in Psalm 136, 7 through 9. Next passage we're going to go to is Psalm chapter 8, verse 3. This is a psalm that's spoken about in the New Testament. It's quoted in the book of Hebrews. It even has a reference to Yeshua one time in the New Testament. But here in Psalm 8 and 3, in this part that I've clipped out for the presentation, it says this. David is writing. He says, When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you set in place. He goes on to say, What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you visit or take care of him? David is saying here, when I look at the vast creation, when I look up into the heavens of which the moon and the stars are a part, and I look and see how glorious that creation is, and then I look at me, I'm nothing compared even to the stars and the moon. What am I that you're mindful of me? What is the Son of Man that you take time to visit Him and take care of Him? That's what David is saying. But notice he mentions the moon and the stars which Yahweh has set in place. Did you know that Yahweh set each of the stars in place? This next passage tells us something that we might not realize, but in Psalm 147, 4-5, it says this, he counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Our Lord is great, vast in power. His understanding is infinite. Our understanding is finite. It has a limit. His is limitless. It has no limit. It's infinite, infinite. Okay? He counts the number of the stars. Brother Tim has read passages in the book of Genesis where Yahweh tells Abram or Abraham to go outside 
and look at the heavens and all of the stars and try to count them. He said, you see how many stars there are? That's how many descendants I'll give you that will come from your, your loins, Abraham. And the meaning there that Yahweh's getting across to Abraham is this. You can't count the stars, Abraham. You can't number them. You ever tried to number the stars? It's the same thing as trying to number the grains of sand on the beach. You can't number one handful of the grains of sand on the beach. And you can't number all the stars. But Yahweh counts the number of the stars. It says that He names each one of them. Think about that. Not only does He put them in place, knows exactly how many of them are there, but all of them have a name. That's pretty amazing if you ask me. Another passage, Revelation 12, verse 1. Just going over some passages here that talk about the stars. We want to look at the stars and how they're brilliant as a creation of Yahweh. Revelation 12, verse 1. I know the book of Revelation has a lot of symbolism, but I want you to look at this. It says, A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. If you look in Revelation 12, this woman is symbolizing something righteous. And it says that she's clothed with the sun, the S-U-N, sun. All right, that should take us back to Genesis, Jeremiah, Psalms. It says the moon is under her feet. We might think of something under your feet being a foundation. And then it says there's a crown of stars on her head, and there's a reason why he says that the crown consists of 12 stars. Once again, Brother Tim has informed us that in the Scriptures, the number 12 is very important. There were 12 tribes of Israel. There were, most of the time, 12 moons in a year. There were 12 slices in the bread of the presence that was in the holy place in the tabernacle. There were 12 disciples. And there's also a significance to the 12 stars. Look at Revelation 22, verse 16. It says this, I, Yeshua, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. Here Yeshua depicts himself as a bright morning star. The scripture has a lot to say about the stars or individual stars. And I've just barely scratched the surface, but I kind of want to just give an introductory today in looking at the stars and just kind of showing you how that a lot of times we don't realize what the Bible actually says until we get in there and read it. I thought to myself today as I was brushing up here on the sermon, I thought to myself, it's amazing what the Scriptures say when you actually take the time to read them. It's truly amazing what you'll find. I can't tell you how many times I've talked with people about the Bible and I've told them something that the Bible says or teaches. And they say, Matthew, that's in the Bible? And I say, yeah, and I'll give them the reference. I never knew that was in there. It's amazing, isn't it? And I'm talking about people that profess to be Bible believers. You know, being a Bible believer doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that you pick up the Bible and put it under your arm or carry it to church once a week. That's not what it means to be a Bible believer. If you truly believe in the Scriptures, in the Holy Bible, it means that every day of your life, that's a major part, the major part of your life. That's Yahweh's letter to you. You believe in the Creator, so therefore you believe the Creator has inspired His Scriptures and you read them daily so that you can glean His mind and hopefully incorporate that into your life and learn 
not to tweak his ways and fit in, but learn how to make sure you get your life in order with his ways that he's set and he's established. Amen? That's how we need to be. Psalm 19, 1 through 6. This is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims the work of His hands. Day after day they pour out speech. Night after night they communicate knowledge. Let's stop right there for a second. What do you think that might mean? Now, I think that when we go back to Genesis 1, 14 through 18, where we saw how that the lights in the heavens... The sun, which rules by day, the moon and the stars, which rules by night, are to be for signs, for seasons or festivals, for days, and for years. I think when we look at that and then couple that with Psalm 19, day after day they pour out speech means that the heavens, the sun, the S-U-N, is proclaiming a message to us every day through its rising and setting. Do you know that's how when we tell when days begin and end? Night after night, the heavens communicate knowledge. Think about that. Night after night. What's in the heavens? The moon and the stars. Now, this is in the Bible, brothers and sisters. The heavens communicate knowledge to us every night. Isn't that beautiful? Do you know that you can tell what night of the month you're in by looking at the moon? You can tell a lot of other things also by looking at the stars. I don't want to get ahead of myself. It goes on to say, there is no speech, there are no words, their voice is not heard. The point is, is that you can't hear them. They don't talk to you, but they speak to you in another way. When you look at them through the sense of sight. Their message has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. You know, another thing I find interesting about Psalm 19, 1 through 6 is that those verses come right before verses 7 to the end of the chapter. And Psalm 19, verse 7 should be familiar to you. It starts off by saying this, The law of Yahweh is perfect, converting the soul. See, Yahweh in Psalm 19, something I've never seen before, but Yahweh in Psalm 19, He divides it up into His message through the heavens and then His message through men. In other words, he's setting us a law in the heavens. Day unto day, it speaks to us. Night unto night, it shows us knowledge. But then when we get to verse 7, then he talks about reading the Scriptures. This law of Yahweh is perfect. See, there's, it's the same law, but there's two spheres of it there. One's in the heavens and one here is tangible. One we can touch. I think that's beautiful. So, through these passages, we see that the lights in the heavens, number one, separate the day from the night. Number two, they serve for signs and seasons, which is legitimately also translated as festivals. As a matter of fact, it's the word feasts in Leviticus 23, where he says, these are my feasts. That word feast, although it's a different English word, is the same Hebrew word as seasons in Genesis 1.14. Moedim in Hebrew, festivals, seasons. They also serve for days and years. Now that sounds like calendrical measurements. These lights in the heavens serve, basically, we're saying, for a calendar, as we call it. Number three, they provide light on the earth. And number four, they communicate knowledge to us if we know how to read them. And that means that we have to study the Scriptures to find out how to read them.
Look at Genesis 1.14 here. Now, this is an Aramaic targum. The word targum is an Aramaic word that means a paraphrase. All right? And Aramaic targums are ancient Aramaic paraphrase translations of the Hebrew Bible. In other words, when we read an Aramaic paraphrase of the Hebrew, it lets us know how people anciently understood the text or what they saw the text to be teaching. Genesis 1.14, in this Aramaic targum, says this, And the Lord said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to distinguish between the day and the night, and let them be for signs and for festival times and for the numbering by them the account of days and for the sanctifying of the beginning of months and the beginning of years, the passing away of months and the passing away of years, the revolutions of the sun, the birth of the moon, and the revolving of seasons. That's beautiful. Now, I think that's exactly what Genesis 1.14 is talking about. And this Aramaic paraphrase of the Hebrew Bible backs my understanding up. It shows that anciently people understood Genesis 1.14 to be a text about how to tell time. And Yahweh tells us in that text what he's given us to tell time. The sun, the moon, and let's not leave out what this message is about, the stars. So, we might think, astrology. Does Brother Matthew turn into an astrologer? I mean, he hadn't preached for four weeks. What's, what's happened to it? You know, I've gotten in two discussions over the years with people that I remember succinctly. And one of them, I was talking with a woman, and I was explaining to her about how we observe the calendar, the sun and the moon. And at that time, I didn't know a whole lot about the stars. Don't claim to know a whole lot about them now, but have learned and grown in my understanding of them up until now, since then. When I explained that to her, Brother Jerry, she looked at me and she said, that sounds like astrology to me. And at the time, I didn't really know what the word astrology meant. I mean, when we think of astrology, the first thing that maybe comes into our mind is maybe horoscopes in a newspaper, you know, maybe the Chinese restaurant. You look at the mat there sitting in front of you and you wonder, should I really be eating here? What's up with all these signs and, you know, fortune cookies and all this kind of stuff? But astrology is actually not that bad of a word at all when you look at the etymology of it. I had another conversation with a very nice Jehovah's Witness woman, and I was talking to her about the new moon. And when I got through, she said, you know, Jehovah tells us that in the last days a lot of people would go follow after the moons. And I said, can you share where that scripture passage is with me? You know, because if somebody's going to say something like that in rebuke, I, I want to know where it's at. Well, it's not in there. She couldn't show it to me. The closest passage that I could think of was Colossians 2.16, which we opened the Scriptures and I walked her through Colossians 2. She didn't have a whole lot to say. Hopefully, I planted a seed there in her mind. We should not think that all astrology is bad. We shouldn't. We should not think that the study of the sun, moon, and stars is an evil thing. We shouldn't think that. The word astrology comes from the Greek language. It's made up of two words, the word astro and the word logia. Therefore, you can see astrology. The word astron in Greek equals or means star. And the word logia equals or means the treating or the treatment of. And so therefore, putting it together, we have the telling or the treating of the stars. That's all that the word astrology means. And originally, when you look up the etymology of the word astrology, originally it was identical with astronomy. And astronomy comes from the two words astro and nomos which means the regulating of the stars. 
Now, if you're real sharp, you'll remember what that word nomos means. I've taught on it before. It's a Greek word that's used often in the Greek New Testament, and it's translated mostly as law. The law. Literally, the word astronomy means the law of the stars. Astronomos. Nomos is law. Astro is stars in Greek. So astrology and astronomy, the study of the, the stars, the treatment of the stars, or the law and telling of the stars is not a bad thing. It's not. Now, granted, people have abused it. A lot of people have misused it. But that doesn't mean that the pure original meaning of it is not still there and cannot still be found. Is star observation condemned in the Scriptures? Some people will point us to Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 19, which says this. For your own good, this is Yahweh speaking to Israel through Moses, be extremely careful because you did not see any form on the day Yahweh spoke to you out of the fire at Horeb, not to act corruptly and make an idol for yourselves in the shape of any figure, a male or female form, or the form of any beast on the earth, any winged creature that flies in the sky, any creature that crawls on the ground, or any fish in the waters under the earth. When you look to the heavens and see the sun, moon, and stars, all the array of heaven, do not be led astray to bow down and worship them. Yahweh your God has provided them for all people everywhere under heaven. So here in Deuteronomy 4, 15-19, what we have is not a condemnation of observing the heavens. We've seen way too many scripture verses that would teach us that we should look to the heavens for signs, seasons, festivals, days, and years. We saw from the Aramaic Targum, this includes the beginning of months, the revolving of seasons, the revolutions of the sun. It's okay to look to the heavens, but what does this verse condemn? This verse condemns worship of the heavenly bodies, which a lot of people have done throughout history. A lot of people have looked at the brilliance and the greatness of the sun and made it into a god called by various names, Mithra being one of them and other names throughout antiquity as well. But people look at these great lights in the heavens and they think they're, they're the gods, they're the powers. But no, they're actually the creations that Yahweh made. And he says, don't worship the host of the heavens. That's what's condemned, not observing the heavens. Not observing the heavens. It's like sometimes when I witness to people about how we do the Sabbath and I say that one of our Sabbaths is on the full moon. Some people even actually thought we were Wiccans one time, my wife and I and my children. And yes, when you look in witchcraft, it has a lot to do with the moon. But you know what? It doesn't matter what witches and warlocks do with a creation that Yahweh made. Is it not true that the prevalent sign today of homosexuality is a rainbow? But is the rainbow the sign of homosexuality? No, it's not at all. The rainbow is a sign of what? Yahweh's promise that he'll never again flood the earth. He gave it to an Adamite named Noah and to his progeny and to us there in Genesis 9. Now, homosexuals have taken that sign and perverted it and used it for their liking. And likewise, witchcraft has taken the moon and they've done all kinds of things to it as well as the stars and the constellations. And they've said a lot of things about them, but that doesn't mean that we still cannot observe them in their purity in the way that Yahweh designed them to be observed. Notice the end here in verse 19 of Deuteronomy 
4, it says, Yahweh your God has provided them for all people everywhere under heaven. That's an odd statement to make right after this text. Right after he gets through with telling you not to worship them, he goes on to say, look, Yahweh has provided them for all people everywhere under heaven. I believe that's a, a smidgen or a little tidbit there about Genesis 1. I've provided them to you. I've created them for you. They're there for a purpose, but their purpose is not to be worshipped. Their purpose is not for you to pay homage to them. They're just creations. I'm the creator, Yahweh is saying. They're my creations. Next, I want to go to a passage that we're all familiar with, but you may not have ever thought about it in this light before. It's read a lot during the winter season. That doesn't mean it's a winter text, (laughs) but it's just read a lot during the winter season. Matthew chapter 2. This is talking about the birth of Yeshua. It says this in verses 1 through 3. After Yeshua was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Judahites, or the Yehudim? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. Here we have some wise men. The Greek word here is magi. Now it is where we get our word magician from. But when you do a study on these wise men, what they were were astronomers or astrologers. Now, don't automatically put up a wall, okay? Because this is a positive text. I'm going to prove that here in a second. There is a use of this word in the New Testament and also in Greek literature that is negative. But a problem that a lot of people have when they do a word study is they take the meaning of a word in one text and then they want to apply that exact same meaning everywhere else. When sometimes there's different context and settings in the Bible and you can't just take one solid meaning of a word and say that it has to mean that everywhere that you find it. You can't even do that in English. Just because a word sounds the same or similar or looks the same doesn't always mean it's the same. Let me give you an example. Consider the word bear in the English language. Now, when I say the word bear, you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. I could be talking about, because I didn't use it in context, so I could be talking about the animal, the grizzly, you know, with the claws. Okay? Could be referring to that, B-E-A-R. But yet I could be talking about bear skin, you know, right here. B-A-R-E. Now, it sounds the same. looks similar, but it doesn't mean the same thing. Or I could be talking about bearing a burden. Bear you one another's burdens was just quoted by Brother Jerry. Just because a word looks the same or sounds the same doesn't always make it mean the exact same thing. And there are words in Hebrew and Greek that have multiple various meanings. Okay? The Hebrew word yom. Is, is one of them. Uh, you know, that, that is the word often translated day in the Bible, D-A-Y. But the word yom doesn't always have to mean a 12-hour day, a hot part of a day. It can mean a 24-hour day. It can even refer to a month. The word yom can refer to a month. The word yom can refer to an entire year at times. Basically, literally just means a portion or a space of time. And so don't take the word astrologer in its negative connotation and think that it has to always be negative. This is a positive connotation of astrologer 
or astronomer. Don't be afraid of those words. Once again, they only mean the treatment of the stars or the regulations and law of the stars. All right? Here we see that these wise men, these magi from the east, tell King Herod they saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Some translations say, or from the Greek, they saw his star rising. could be possibly translated like that. Look at Matthew 2, 4 through 6. It says this, So he, speaking of Herod, assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. The prophet being spoke about is specifically the prophet Micah, Micah chapter 5. It says, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, because out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. That's a prophecy from Micah 5, 2 through 4. And so it's teaching us that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem in the land of Yehuda or Judah. All right? Now, Matthew 2, 7 through 9. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. So Herod's already found out from the chief priests and scribes where the Messiah is going to be born. Now he secretly gets the wise men together and he says, look, what's the exact time that this star appeared? He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. Of course, we know from reading the rest of the text, he's not telling the truth here. He doesn't want to worship him. He wants to kill him. He's afraid he's going to take his kingship role. Okay? But, I don't believe Herod could have killed him, no matter how much he wanted to, because Yahweh's plan cannot be thwarted, okay? After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen in the east. The HCSB puts the exclamation point there. I like that. It led them. What led them? The star. Now, Yahweh was leading them ultimately, right? But he was using the vehicle of the star to do it. Until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. So this star that the Magi, the astrologers or astronomers see in the east, it leads them to Bethlehem of Judea in that lowly place where our humble Messiah was birthed. And then it stops over that place. That's magnificent. I get cold chills when I even speak that right now. That's magnificent. Matthew 2, 10 through 12. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed beyond measure. Entering the house, they saw the child would marry his mother. And falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. It says, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed beyond measure. They recognize the pure purpose of Yahweh's creation, I believe. So, here's some points on the wise men that prove that this is a positive text. Think about this. Point number one, they're never condemned here. Not one time in this text are they condemned. Point number two, Yahweh was guiding and protecting them. Remember, not only did He guide them by the star to the birthplace of His Son, the Messiah, but they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. You remember when Herod told them there in Matthew 2, 4 through 6? Or I think it was maybe 7 through 9. Herod said, when you find him, 
Please come and tell me where he is so that I can go and pay homage or worship him too. Of course, he's telling a lie. But they were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. Why? Because if you read on in Matthew 2, Herod puts out a proclamation that all the children from two years old and under were to be killed in that community or in that region of the world. Who do you think sent them the dream? Yahweh sent them the dream, right? It wasn't Satan. Amen. It wasn't, it wasn't any kind of fallen angel. It was Yahweh that sent them the dream. Almighty Yahweh. Number three, they referred to Yeshua as the king of the Yehudim, or the Judahites. And he is the king of the Judahites, the true Judahites. And they were seeking to pay homage to him with precious gifts. That's what the word worship means, to bow down. And any time that you went to visit a king, you did not show up with empty hands. You showed up with precious gifts. Gifts like gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Precious oils, precious metals. And number four, they were led to Yeshua's birthplace by a star in the heavens. That's undeniable. Genesis 1.14, don't forget, he says, let them be for signs. And he's speaking partly of the stars. In Strong's Hebrew Dictionary, number 226, this word signs is oath. Probably from 225 in the sense of appearing a signal, literally or figuratively, as a flag, beacon, monument, omen, prodigy, evidence, etc. It's translated as mark, miracle, ensign, sign, and token in the King James Version. And that word oath is used in Genesis 9 for the sign or the oath of the rainbow. That star that the Magi or the wise men saw in the east was a sign by Yahweh. And they followed it until it stopped over the exact place where the prophet Micah said Yeshua would be birthed. That is so powerful. Hallelujah. So, somebody says, well, what about text in the Scriptures like Isaiah 47, 13 through 14, which says this, You are worn out with your many consultations, so let them stand and save you, the astrologers who observe the stars, who predict monthly what will happen to you. Look, they are like stubble. Fire burns them up. What about Jeremiah 10, verse 2, which says this, This is what Yahweh says, Do not learn the way of the nations or be terrified by signs in the heavens, although the nations are terrified by them. Now, I could do a lot of commenting on these verses, and I will here in just a second with the next slide. But Jeremiah 10, verse 2, I think, I think that it's a reference to ancient winter solstice celebrations. That is because people that worship the S-U-N sun, when the days get shorter in the wintertime, like around the winter solstice, which is actually the shortest day of the year and the longest night of the year, people anciently in antiquity in various civilizations and communities they would bring in plants and trees into their home that never faded away, called evergreens. Why? Because they represented light. And what they were doing was they were trying to appease what they thought was their God, the sun, to come back because the days have gotten so short and the nights have gotten so long. So let's bring things into our home that represent life. And so then when the days begin to lengthen after the winter solstice, they thought that it was appeasing their God. And Jeremiah 10, verse 2, I think, goes on to talk about that and the rest of Jeremiah 10. I think that's what that's referring to. And what he's saying is, you don't need to be afraid of the signs in the heavens. You don't need to do that. You see that, okay? You can go study that out for yourself when you get a chance. What we see here in the text of Scripture, remember, Isaiah 47 and Jeremiah 10 cannot trump 
all of the scriptures we've read that speak positively of the stars and even of astrology and astronomy. What we have is a proper use and we have an abuse. For instance, proper use will be the signs of righteous events. And abuse would be the signs of your personal future. In other words, you go to this person and she tells you for 1995, I could tell you who you'll be married to and the color of his hair, etc. And you say, whew, only 1995? I've got to slap 20 bucks down. No. He's saying, no, don't do that. See, Yahweh's signs in the heavens are used to foretell righteous things. Not your own personal future, who you're going to marry or what's going to happen to you three years from now. That's, that's hogwash, right? Proper use. Use to tell time. That is regular time by the heavenly lights or festival time by the heavenly lights. The abuse would be fear of what the heavens are going to do to you. Remember, like I talked about in the winter solstice celebrations, that's just the natural occurrence of Yahweh's creation for the days to get shorter and the nights longer during the winter months. That's a natural thing. All right, we don't have to be afraid that the sun god has went away. We don't need to appease him by bringing evergreens into our homes. Yahweh says don't do that in Jeremiah 10. Number three, proper use. They're used to glorify Yahweh. Matthew chapter 2 is all about glorifying Yahweh through His Son. Showing up there in Bethlehem of Judea. The abuse to glorify self. To see what I can tell about my future, my prognostication. What can you tell me? How great am I going to be? Number four, proper use. The worship of Yahweh. Number four, abuse. The worship of idols. When you look at Isaiah 47, Jeremiah 10, and compare them with these other scriptures, what you see is an abuse rather than a proper use. Don't let the abuse turn you away from the proper use. I'm going to get into this more next week, but there's a lot that the Scripture has to teach us about the constellations. Have people abused the constellations, the zodiac, as, as we say? Yes, they have. But did you know there's a proper use of those? Didn't you know that Yahweh created those star formations? Things like the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper and all these other things in the sky. Yahweh formed those. Each of those stars, Psalm 147 says, He knows them by name. He knows their number in the heavens. Don't let the abuse turn you away from the proper use. Remember, heaven is Yahweh's creation. This includes the stars. They therefore have a righteous purpose. Though man may manipulate this purpose, the original pure purpose of the stars still prevails. Amen? Look at the stars. You get a chance tonight, take a look at them. Might have to go out late at night and see them a little bit better. They're a beautiful thing. Man has not tampered with Yahweh's creation in that area. Scripture has a lot to say about it. We've covered a basic introduction tonight. Yahweh's will, I'll finish this up next week. Let's stand and close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I love You, I thank You, and I praise You. You are worthy, and You're righteous, and You're holy. And Father, we're unworthy, unrighteous, and unholy. But, but, through the offering and the gift of Your Son, You have made us worthy, righteous, and holy. And so, Father Yahweh, we come to You today boldly, but it's only through the blood of, of our Messiah. And so we're so thankful to be able to come to You in prayer. I pray, Yahweh, Father, that You'd open up our eyes to Your creation, the creation in the heavens that You've, that you've made. Father, that we would recognize, Father Yahweh, that they have been abused, the heavens have been abused. But, Father Yahweh, I pray that it would not turn us away from using the heavens properly. 
as you said, for signs, seasons, days, and years. Father, I pray that that which is true would remain with the people today and anything that I've spoken that is false, they would forget. We glorify you and it's through your Son we pray. Amen.